All right, we're beginning chapter one of The Longest Memory, titled Whitechapel. Why is chapter one titled Whitechapel? Yeah, so you'll notice every chapter besides the prologue and the epilogue is provided with the narrator's name. So in our books, we should have our exercise books open to note down our annotations as well, please. And if you're listening to this again, in chapter one, we have a continuous tone of grief from both the epigraphs and the prologue. So all I'd like you to note down is that there's a continuous tone of grief, this enduring sense of grief. Let's start reading. That morning, I faced the world for the first time as a nobody, nameless, because Highlight this quote, I had no name. I was able to return to my body-shaped space on the straw mat on the floor, clear a few limbs out of the way and sleep so deep I was the last to rise. When before I'd lie there and listen to the others breathe, snore, talk in their sleep, cry out, whimper, shield their heads from a blow, contract their bodies to receive a lash, kick and punch as if bloodhounds were upon them. Let's unpack that meta language. Can we highlight each of these verbs? Sleep, cry out, whimper, shield, blow, kick and punch. These verbs create a violent imagery. What does this violent imagery highlight to us as readers? What does it show us? What happens to the slaves? Yeah, they are, they're being abused, good. They suffer inhumane treatment, fantastic. Then we have zoomorphism again, don't we? What was zoomorphism? Animal imagery, animal comparisons. Who are the bloodhounds that are upon the slaves? Who are the bloodhounds that attack the slaves? The masters, the overseers, very good. We grind our teeth so loud it sounds like two huge stones rubbed together. Whinny like horses and bray like mules, grunt like hogs, howl like wolves, or just plain die with a gasp. I did this going to sleep last and waking first routine for too long. Highlight, the bags under my eyes are sacks of worries. What are eyes symbolic of? Pain that we've witnessed, what else? trauma of our history what does it mean this is a metaphor guys this quote the bags under my eyes we all have bags they become sacks of worries for Whitechapel what does this tell us what does this metaphor convey say that again yep so he's been crying worrying what else his eyes are carrying sacks of worries He's yeah, he's heavily loaded by his trauma. He's burdened by his trauma. Fantastic. Witnesses of dreams, nightmares and sleep from which a man should not be allowed to wake. The last breath is not exhaled as the body releases its hold on life and the bones relax into the shape of sleep. That's wrong. The last breath is fought for. Again, each time Whitechapel speak, what is the text type? It is internal monologue. This chapter, like the prologue, is a stream of consciousness. Look at all these run-on sentences. Clearly, 
the stream of consciousness is highlighting how overburdened by grief and death and loss Whitechapel is. Air is sucked in, the chest heaves and swells with the effort. The eyes are flung open as the dreamer realizes this dream of death is real and his last. He literally wakes from sleep startled that this breath is final and instead of relief he registers fear, more akin to surprise. Had he been prepared by some marvellous counsel, then he would have welcomed this last breath as if he were being fed honey and died with his eyes closed and a smile on his lips. But the fight for air instills panic. The thing we have talked over countless times as our only salvation creeps up on us and catches us by surprise. All the laughing we did over it becomes the last laugh, death's last laugh. My feeling is mixed. The breath should have been mine. Why must I be the witness to something? Highlight the next two sentences. And remember, what does highlighting mean when we are highlighting specific sentences or phrases? It means, what are these? Quotes we have to remember. Yeah, important quotes that you will be remembering for your essays. I'm going to read out this quote now. I deserve more than anyone on this plantation. I've seen enough for one life, several lives. What does Whitechapel long for? I've seen enough for one life, several lives. What is he longing for? What does he want? He wants to die and he sees freedom through death. I forget if I've dreamed an experience or really remember it. I put most recollection down to fantasy. That boy of mine was not whipped to death for running away, for getting nowhere, not even to the next town. He jumped into my head in a whipping scene because I'd sat through too many to recall with, the, with exact order and sat because each stroke of the whip buckled my legs from under me and drained me of every ounce of my energy just to watch without sound with my hand over my eyes. If I look away, I risk inviting, inviting a beating. Okay, we're introduced to a new symbol. Let's write this down. The symbol of the whip. What is a whip, ladies and gentlemen? So a whip is a weapon of torture. It carries violence, brutality. Who holds this power of oppression? Very good, let's write that down. So it's a weapon and power of oppression. What does oppression mean? What does it mean to oppress people? Force them to be obedient, yeah? Force them into subjugation. Yep. Very good. It's almost like whoever wields the whip has the control and power, correct? But it's power and control through violent, brutal methods. That's what's really important. So I look with these bloodshot eyes that see without seeing, witness without registering a memory or sensation. Highlight. The boy's 200 lashes lasted no more than 20 minutes. 200 lashes. The reason why the author is emphasizing the amount of lashes is to portray and convey the intense, the racial violence that slaves have suffered for centuries. I saw when he switched from screaming at each blow, tensing his body for the next, screaming on impact again, relaxing his body for a moment to catch his breath and groan and then tensing again. Sometimes he would tense too late. 
The whip seemed to cause the nerves to tighten as if it imbued the body with life rather than draining that life away. This first chapter is also a form of flashback. What is Whitechapel now recalling, guys? The death of his son. The death of his son. And his son's name? Chapel. Very good. His screams were louder then and simultaneously a little weaker than before. That's when I learned how to live without being hurt by life. Sensation, this witnessing of things taxing. I, highlight, I literally saw the boy surrender to that whip. Highlight, I literally saw the boy surrender to that whip. Those blows, the whole rhythm of lash, pause, lash and tense, breathe, tense. I saw it in his eyes. They looked at me, at us all, for one last time and clouded, misted, glazed themselves. For the rest of the beating, we begged with greater intensity and risked to ourselves for him to be spared because we had all seen him cross from our world to the next. But when his name was called, he always answered clearly and nodded, which was taken as good grounds to resume the punishment. Really, really important. Can we highlight the next sentence? It goes for about five lines. All right. Imran, are you still with us? It doesn't look like it. So could you sit up, please? Thank you. Sit up. Thank you. Really sitting up. Thank you. Thank you. The whip ate into him. But like all gluttons who have gorged themselves to their fill, it bit and chewed without swallowing. Okay, there's two literary features that are working together now. Ready? Personification. What is personified? What is a glutton? We know this, surely. To the point, but they are never full. Very good. Thank you, Jai. The whip ate into him. So we've got personification and also violent imagery now. So can we write personification and violent imagery as the whip kills Chapel? Listen to this. It bit and chewed without swallowing. What do you think that means? What was the whip actually biting into? The skin. The skin, the fat, the muscle, the bones. And if it means that it wasn't swallowing, what does that tell you about the flesh that was being ripped off of Chapel's body? Yeah. He's been flayed to death. And simply bit and chewed some more until its mouth was so full of flesh that food seeped out its corners to make room for more. This is a brutal and inhumane punishment. Look at the power that these overseers and masters have over other humans. The whip fed on him until the count reached 200. We cut him down and called his name throughout and he found something somewhere to nod and answer just as before, but his look was distant removed from the events perpetrated on his body, not in the least bit interested in our fuss and worry and open grief for him. I took on his look from that moment. We dressed his back with balm that took away feeling and stopped blood in its tracks. We talked to him and he nodded, but he stopped answering to his name. Then his head hardly moved, then not at all, and his eyes which remained the same told us nothing. That's how I know he was gone halfway into that beating when he stopped screaming father because he could see I was being held down and was no good to him 
The eyes became less wide and still and the tears that continued to stream from them did so in a steady flow, whereas before they seemed to appear in floods as the whip tore into him. I closed those eyes after one last look at them. I said sorry and closed them and turned away from them into the exact look in my own eyes. I was crying up till then uncontrollably during the whipping. Then as I tended his back almost noiselessly in order to steady my hand, whose touch made his flesh recoil. My hand is not the whip, my son. I said, or I imagined saying to him. He nodded to everything, then nothing. I had to have no name to match this look and the remainder of this life. Highlight, sour face. That's what my family calls me. All right, we're going to write down that sour face and the lines on Whitechapel's face is a scar of his trauma. So sour face, it's a symbol, a representation of the scars of trauma and injustice. What's really interesting is, again, we see this self-imposed punishment. Whitechapel has renounced his own identity. He wants no name because of his grief. But I need to tell you something. Do you think it's just because of the death of his son? Do you think it's just because of the death of his son? No. We're saying no. Why? I know. Yeah. Remember the tetracolon poetic structure? What were the four collection of labels that Whitechapel has been identified boy. as? Boy. Slave. Incorrect. Boy. Mule. Mule. And slave. Look at that dehumanization process that he's suffered. That's been ever since he was born and then stolen and kidnapped from Africa. There are lines, two of them on each side of my mouth, turned down lines, two short strokes that run from the corner of my lips. It's very similar to what's on my face, but his ones would be deeper. See these, if you guys ever have these, like smile lines, but they're two strokes that really run deep across his face. Okay, my dad. As deep as any scar, but earned over nights of lying awake, staring at the dark and the dark staring back unblinkingly and listening to the heart turning in its sleep and then hearing the turns without thinking turn because the looking and listening had become numb and the brain had emptied itself, gone numb too as a result of so much hard attention to nothing and everything. I feel a trickle of saliva unburdening along the left sour line at the side of my mouth. A little trickle on wheels, relocating to a more joyful place. My hand should come up to my face and swipe it out of existence. But I think of the action, see it even, and nothing happens. So the trickle continues over my chin and along the stubble of my neck, slowing down and reducing in size as each inch of the trail it leaves behind subtracts from its mass. Worry cut those paths in my face. I let it happen because I didn't feel it happening and only knew it was there when someone called me sour face one day and I looked in the mirror for evidence and found plenty staring back at me. What was I before this traumatic event? I forget. Did I smile? Laugh out loud? I don't recall. He is so haunted by his past, he has forgot to be human. He can't laugh anymore. He can't smile. And we know if you don't laugh, if you don't smile, are you living? Are you alive? No. What is that? 
I think of a donkey brain. He's even forgot what a laugh sounds like. And to him, it sounds like a donkey brain. Anyone can do a donkey brain? What does it sound like? Yes, well done, Jai. Thank you. A bit louder for everyone to hear. Yeah, very, very well done. Very well done. Very interactive. That is like a big laugh. Involuntary. Involving the whole body. Noisy and long and toothy. What could lead to such behaviour? There is nothing in my past to make me break. Knowing this, I can say I will never laugh again. Highlight, I will never laugh again. Sour face, that's me. Not dead eyes, not blackhead, not ancient, though I've earned ancient, but sour face. The lines were chiseled there without my permission. I must have worried and called it by another name. Like thinking, how else could I have done it for so long without worrying? That I was doing something that would exact a toll on me. Thinking things over, I see now how I made my life harder than it needed to be and longer than necessary. My face says life is sour. A life that was fresh to begin with, but one left out too long turned to this. Counting the hours that drag through the dark, bidding the minutes that hop and shift and hobble along the days. When I lie still at night, I am those hours refusing to pass. Getting around the plantation, one of those minutes has a sour face and returns my sour mouth inside the rim of a cup of water. I have buried two wives and most of my children. Whitechapel has outlived both of his wives and pretty much all of his children. The only people around him from his family are his great-grandchildren. Do you think him not dying and outliving all of this is some form of punishment? Why though? He's had a horrible life. What is he being punished for? What is he being punished for? Yeah, you can't say. We're going to find out right this second. What did he do? I am surrounded by grandchildren. Did no one else read this? Okay. I am surrounded by grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They think, highlight, very important, I am a Judas. Okay. Judas, let's write this down in our English books, please, is a biblical illusion. Illusion, how do we spell that? A-double-L-U-S-I-N. Biblical illusion. Um, who knows their Bible stuff? Who is Judas? I don't know. Very good. Say it louder, yeah? Ooh, a traitor. Who did he betray? Jesus. Okay, question for everyone besides this one. Why do his great-grandchildren call him Judas? You shush. I already betrayed someone. Who did Whitechapel betray? His girlfriend. I'll tell you who he betrayed, but I won't tell you how. He betrayed Chapel. Let's go. Whitechapel's the biggest snitch of all. Let's continue reading. They think I am a Judas and an old man who can make a great pepper stew when goaded to do so. They leave me alone most of the time, fuss over me from a suitable distance at mealtimes, check to see if I am still alive first thing in the morning with a tug or a prod, then disappear 
for the day into the fields. One of them ran into me once. We both rounded the same corner of the house thinking it was a river flowing one way. I was going at my minute pace. He was running full pelt from a stick wielded by someone with authority over him. He knocked me off my feet and I rolled for several yards before stopping face up in the stars. He carried on running and the stick bearer came over to me and helped me to my feet, then whacked me on the legs for delaying him. Before resuming the chase, that knock bat what? That knock that brought out stars in broad daylight recurs. Beautiful, well done. Alright, Ash, you're over. I walk far from corners I can't see around. Though I've been never met anyone in the, that way since. Suddenly I'll be stopped in my tracks by a knock in my head and the stars will come out. And if I can't reach out and hold something to steady me, I'll slump down on the ground for my own good or kneel over. At first they at first they, the great chant grandchildren fussed over me and I and argued I was done for. But I always recorded so fast they left me alone. My great grandchildren started calling me sit down grandfather. I liked that more than sour face. Sometimes when I saw one coming, I'd wait until I was sure they saw me. And then I'd sit down deliberately as if the stars had forced me off my feet. And when the look of worry and alarm made them dart to me, I'd wave them away impatiently. Uh, they would laugh at me like a donkey. I can't laugh. So I'd shake my head at their pleasure and at how easy a laugh came to them. Perhaps I laughed with my first wife and daughters and my second wife and our son. If not with their children and, ch and children's children, they laugh at me. There is no evidence in my eyes to show me uh, that I laughed at any point in my past and certainly nothing in, in my twisted mouth. A nose is neutral. A nose gives little away, betrays nothing. The temper in a flared nostril might be a warning never to tease the person, but it does not say that the bear of flared nostrils once did something cruel or murderous. Not so with my eyes and mouth. They telegraph my past, my present and my future. Sour face, dead eyes. I'm going to pause right there from going to analyze now. Are continuing? Are you? All right, so um, can we highlight sour face and dead eyes? What I love about the quote previously to the statement is how Whitechapel even realises that his mouth and his eyes and the scars on his face, they telegraph his past, present and future. What does telegraph mean? See you before it's coming through. It's like a... Like, like sends the message yeah. that his eyes and face is able to communicate his past, present and future. Continue, please. Do not meet him at a blind corner. If you do, carry on running. Do not hesitate or look back at those eyes, that mouth. <coughs> Run as if from a big stick. Sour mouth is contagious. Can we please highlight dead eyes turned to stone? Like, so like, dead eyes like, turned to stone. Can anyone actually tell me, that is a, there's a parallel created. Anyone remember a Greek mythology? Minnesota. She would look at someone and they would get harder. Turn <laughs> <laughs> yes, technically. Turn hard, stay stone. So it's not very clever, it's just a little bit you know, blunt. Turn to stone. But what's really interesting is that his dead eyes have turned to stone. There's this is parallel created to Medusa. That Whitechapel is not when he looks at someone and they turn to stone. 
is that his own eyes, his own memories, have turned himself into stone. What does that mean? Fantastic. Has he lost it or has it been forcibly taken away? Great. Imran, please, please continue. We're still recording. Run even if you shed the blood of those eyes, or is it that mouth? Eyes that have seen all mouth that has said nothing but kept silence. I can't keep silence. Sit down, grandfather, the laughing stock. Obstacle burden soon. When the eyes, the red eyes blacken, when the stars I see are from a knock that recurs and the sky is close and black, always black. So we have this motif now here darkness versus light. When the stars I see are from a knock that reoccurs and the sky is close and black, always black. The black sky, the sky always appears black to him. That is just surrounded by darkness. When I sit, it will be, it will be for no one but myself. I will not rise and dust my pants off and shake my head at the pleasure given to someone else's expense. My wife will call and I will answer her the one way I know how, in silence and with gesture. gesture. Now that we speak across the years without words, across the darkness of his life and her death, she asked me to hold her, but she was already too heavy with death for my arms. Right now, what's happening, don't pause it, what's happening is Whitechapel is remembering the day his wife died. This day is momentous to Whitechapel because the second his wife dies, she dies from a fever and dies in her arms. Chapel decides it's the day he runs away. Straight after his mom's death. Continue, Neymar. The pillows behind her head and back were compressed by her dying over weeks. A slow death that took so long I willed it to come. Get its work done and get out of my life. My son held her for me. He looked away to hide his wet eyes. I leaned to her with my ears brushing her, with my ears brushing her nose and mouth to hear her last wish. She said, don't keep me waiting too long. I finished her sentence for her. She got as far as to in her briefly sentence and I said long. But she said nothing. She said nothing in reply and my son looked at us with a jerk of his head and I knew she was dead. The next dawn he was gone by the dust that same day, caught. And before night set in, he joined his mother with me leaning over him because he was too heavy to hold or as I imagined, I must have cradled him when he was young. I'm not reading. I promised her I wouldn't be long, but I set my son in my place less than a full day later. Now I can't die because I can't face her blaming me for sending him ahead of me or in my place or at all. My years since her death and his are stolen, cowardly, seen through bloody eyes. Fat with numb skin and aching bones, stale arid, black in the sky and hard in the heart and sour in the mouth. When my great-grandchild came around that bend at the back of the house and knocked me off my feet and carried on running, it was from the stick as much as to avenge my son on me. That's why I said nothing to him and nothing to me. I see the stars of that day each time a little longer than before. One day I know I'll see them and they will be the last thing I see and sit down grandfather will be no more and glad because of it and a smile and a smile might turn up my turn down mouth something approximating the beginning of a donkey's bray might escape my lips if anything to my mind a simple lesson in obedience was all that my boy required 
He needed to know his station sooner rather than too late. I believe some punishment would do him good because it would keep him alive by driving from his wild head once and for all. Any notion of freedom from responsibility, he was, the next he was born owned by another man like his father before him and like his son would be born. Now what this quote shows us is Whitechapel teaching Chapel and his children about generational slavery. Whitechapel is highlighting how his father was owned by a man and his son and his son after his son will continue. What does Whitechapel think of slavery? Does he think it will, it's inevitable? Yes. Does he ever think it will come to an end? No. No. But what we're going to see now is Chapel's struggle to belong in this society. So Chapel's struggle to belong. Undoubtedly, Chapel is a representation of youth. Okay? Youth who are longing for freedom. This sounds straightforward enough, but from the increasing number of runaways, you wouldn't think so. Where do runaways go when they don't get caught? I always pose this question to the young because I can see their dreams as plain as their colour and youth on their faces. Paradise is the answer I get from them. Paradise. Highlight paradise. Do you remember the epigraph? Mm-hmm. What was the message conveyed about paradise, about Atlantis? Who can remind us in the epigraph? What is, what was Atlantis, what was Paradise, what was the themes presented? Fish. Even Paradise. Does Paradise exist for slaves? No. Is it a dream or a reality? Dream. Dream. What we're going to learn now though, can you sit up on that face? What we're going to learn now though, is that Whitechapel's view of Paradise is different to the view of Chapel. What does Whitechapel think Paradise is for slaves? Good, because that's when they're free. What do you think Chapel's view of paradise is? Freedom. Love. Freedom? Dream when? How? By running away. Being free in society. Um, actually, we're done this afternoon. Can you have a page actually? Um, please. I'm sick. From Dan right, yeah? Yes, please. Um, I'm going to count down. Be like, what's your name? <clears throat> Three, two, one. Damn right, I shall. Wait. Yeah. Damn right, I shall. When they are captured by the trackers, they are co consigned to paradise, sent there forthwith. Free at last, but not free to tell us anything about it. Run from here, you die. <clears throat> my boy listened to my careful reasoning, shook his head negatively, but had the grace to keep quiet and walk away. I knew he put my argument down to old age, or cowardice, or both. I must have watched him walk away, still shaking his head as if to empty it of my words, and decided that he needed to learn for himself. I knew the cost of such a lesson. The risk was obvious to me, and yet the schooling and the idea of subservice, obedience, compliance was different. For each of us. I want you to highlight <clears throat> now the next sentence, which is still a run-on sentence, and it goes for over one, two, three, four, five, six sentences. We're now going to find out what Whitechapel's view of slavery is and what Chapel's view of slavery is. Did you pause or is there how many minutes? 31. 31. Cool, continue. It was my view that a slave could live a good life. 
good long life if he worked hard and presented to his master the most dignified aspect of himself in order to reciprocate the same manner that from that master the same civility fairness and even kindness once the relationship grew warm and cordial what's really interesting now is that Whitechapel clearly accepts the status quo let's write this down books please Whitechapel accepts the status quo quo being Q-U-O what is the status quo for a slave that what do you have to be two key things Obedient and what to your master? Loyal. Yes, of course, loyal. Fantastic. Whitechapel accepts the status quo, which means that he accepts that slaves must be obedient and loyal to who? To the master. To the master. <laughs> Question Do you think Chapel accepted this status quo? No. Or did he reject this status quo? Rejects it. What evidence is there to prove, thank you? that he rejected this status quo. He ran away. He runs away. He runs away. <laughs> um, Jaya's going to start typing and taking our notes. Hamna, um, please continue. I saw this with these dead eyes of mine when these eyes were living and, wa- and wild and thirsty for change, for the right to roam at will. I saw too many healthy, kind, funny young, and young men and women disappear from my life. My son would not be one of them, but I realized that day when he shook off my reasoning and restored his own faulty dreams that I would have to save him from himself with a lesson. I was distracted by the bedridden um, dem- How do you say it? Demise? demise of his young mother. Uh, the fever dried her up to the resembled resembled me in years. She was on the verge of this world and the next. She needed constant attention. I was relieved of most of my duties by the master who informed the overseer to allow me t- to allow me time to attend to her needs. Who could get the degree of consideration shown them but someone who had managed to elect kindness and fairness from another? Did you just hear what Whitechapel just said? He said, look at the kindness I received from my master. He allowed me to take some time off to be with my dying wife. This man was kidnapped from his family, enslaved, punished, and tortured, and yet he actually thanks his master for certain things. What does this tell us about Whitechapel's personality and character? talk with my son and my decision re- receded 
Oh. Receded from my mind. My wife lost all sense of time and was constant with her distress. Her pain from the lower region of her back was severe. I could not convince the master to pay for her um, physician to look at her, but he did argue and convince me that her time had come and that everyone was able to become an old ox like me. Highlight, old ox like me. Okay, what literary feature is this? Zoomorphism. There's a simile, but it is a form of zoomorphism and simile, isn't it? What did Mr. Whitechapel just compare Whitechapel to? An ox. An ox. What is an ox used for? Maybe. Exactly. Um, this seemed acceptable, so I set about to make her last days comfortable. The hours took her toll. When she died, I was exhausted. My son was gone before I missed him. It was out of my hands, or so it seemed, until I realized unless I did something, he would be in paradise with his mother and his broken body left in a ghoulie somewhere to rot. That would have been his, his fate if I had washed my hands of my responsibility to him. I could not. The overseer had left with a party of hungry men. Some I like hungry men. What does this tell us more about the men who work for Mr. Whitechapel in the plantation, the overseer? What are they hungry for? Go further. No. So hungry men have been sent by the master, Mr. Whitechapel, and the overseer. The overseer is with them. They work for Mr. Whitechapel. They're like their workers, not slaves. They're paid. They're white. What are they hungry for, guys? If they've gone after Chapel, he's a runaway slave. Avenging their master. But what are they hungry for? What do they sound like to you? Predators. Can we highlight quite hungry men? The overseer and master appear predatory. Who is their prey or who are their prey? Chapel. The representation of slaves. Yeah, very good. So, if you have an iron and down, or oh, if you needed a pillow, I think. Some hours before in pursuit, he did not even bother to question me. As soon as I heard my son was gone, my only son, the son I'd reasoned with and who I had rejected my reasoning, I knew what I had to do. There are two types of slave. The slave who must experience everything for himself before coming to an understanding of anything, and he would learn through observation. The slave in the first category behaves as if he's the only slave in the world and visited by the worst luck on earth. That type of slave is agitated, brings much trouble on his head, and he makes the lot of every slave ten times worse. It generally accepted that the slave is in the second category, is brighter, lives longer, causes everyone around him a minimum of worries, and earns the small kindness of the overseer and the master. I realized my son was in the first, was in the first troublesome category, first troublesome category. That day he walked away. He walked away from my advice. A bolt of lightning shot through my heart. My heart beat, rattled like the start of rain, on a roof before steadying again, with the rhythm of a downpour. I resolved to save my son, not to abandon him, the horrible fate he might bring to himself. The news that he had run some hours earlier brought me to the master's front door, the door to his two private rooms upstairs within his house. Um, for the 
For the first time in my life, Mr. Whitechapel emerged half-dressed, surprised at my boldness and irritated and intrigued by it at the same time. He assumed his customary pose, left hand on his hip, right hand cradling a pipe that druded from his mouth like an extra organ. I begged his I begged his pardon, wished God's blessing on him and his two sons and one daughter and good wife. What's his daughter's name? Thank you. Who does Lydia try to hook up with? Very good. What does she teach Chapel? Reading. English. English. Thank you, Om. And proceeded to explain. And proceed. Please continue, Om. And proceeded to explain my solution to my son's impulsive idiocy. idiocy. Yes. He he cut me short and asked me what I would do, what what I would have, what I, what I would I, do with the runaway good end. Good end. Poisoning their minds on a daily basis. I I said that he he did not need to worry about my son because my proposal would ensure a compliant, obedient servant who had who had made one impulsive in, indiscretion. What is Mr. Whitechapel's biggest concern about Chapel running away? You go, Margaret. It's really got nothing to do with Lydia Manette. I have no idea where you've taken that from. Yeah. You don't even know that together. Incorrect. <laughs> what is Mr. Whitechapel's biggest concern? Are we still recording? Yeah, we're still recording. Poisoning whose mind? With what? How do you poison a mind? Um, now, third time. Up. He asked again what I would have him do. I looked at him for the first time in our exchange. He was distracted and exasperated. He had never been like this with me before in all the years I had served him. I said I would pray for him and his family as I have always prayed. I begged him to send a man after the search party to ensure my son's safety, safe return and unjust punishment. He said events were now out of his control and in God's hand. God was just and fair, and he and I should accept his judgment on us all. I agreed and took a, a breath to plead my case, but in he interceded with the question. I'm just going to interject. Can we please highlight? God was just and fair, and he and I should accept his judgment on us all. This is an exceptionally important thing. What is Mr. Whitechapel hiding behind? Religion. Let's write this down in our books. Mr. Whitechapel uses religion to justify his unjust actions towards slaves. One more time and last time. Mr. Whitechapel uses religion to justify his unjust actions towards slaves. He literally says, God is just and fair and Whitechapel should accept God's judgment. But excuse me, who is making this judgment? Who is making this call to go capture Chapel and kill him? So why is he saying God? Now make this link go deep. He's trying to be God. Thank you. 
He thinks his power is almighty like God. In his view, do slaves deserve God? Also, slavery, like slavery. Listening, I want to hear that voice. Oh, slavery emotions, didn't they like originate from like the Bible, like all? And it was and manipulated and twisted. Yeah. Correct. And other forms of slavery throughout history were derived. 100%. And you're going to say, we're going to hear from Mr. Whitechapel. The next chapter is from Mr. Whitechapel and Sanders Sr.'s diary entries. And guess what? They are the most religious and devoted men. Yet they're the most horrific and monstrous like. Let's continue. Thank you. I said no, and again took a breath to reason this dilemma to a flare conclusion. Again, he interrupted me by repeating his question, this time with more volume and a degree of anger that was clearly intended to silence me. I bowed. He turned on his heels and I spoke. Sir, I know where my son is. This stopped him and spun him around to bring him face to face with me as before. Where? 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 Man, speak up! He was furious and appeared to judge my knowledge of my son's whereabouts as some form of power over him, my master. This was cause enough for me to breathe deeply and cherish the air in his quarters that was perfumed and stale in equal parts. I cast my eyes about the room as if the words I wanted to collect were the various items of clothing I saw strewn about the furniture, which, was, which would miraculously leap into my head and off my tongue in recognition. That's it. Yep, cool. Hurry up, man! I haven't all day! Sir, my son believes there is a place called Paradise on Earth. Highlight Paradise on Earth. What is this paradise? Do you think that Chapel's referring to? The North. Because what is at the North of America? Laws. Laws that allow slaves to be free. He has gone to find it. He has done what the young reason to be their prerogative because they are blessed with youth. That is, be impetuous and be damned. He is my only son. Where in hell's name is he, Whitechapel? My name was bellowed out. Footsteps rushed into his room from all ports of entry. House slaves, his wife and children, and two guests of the family who were due to leave when my son's disappearance took precedence. It was the first time he'd called me by my name for a long time. <clears throat> to use my name in anger was the severest verbal form of disapproval my master could have shown me. For me, it was the verbal equivalent of a whip. Lash. Remember the symbol of whip? What we call a tongue lashing. I winced and bowed as if a whip had boiled the air around my back. He has taken the river path. I beg for leniency. He is grieving for his mother. The river? But the trackers have gone north. If Whitechapel had not said to Mr. Whitechapel where his son had gone, they would have never found him. His trackers and overseer went north. Amar, would you like a pillow? To go for that, a little blankie, to go for a little nap when you follow along. But he's gone along the river <laughs> instead. Question. This is the question we have to ask ourselves in this chapter. Why did Mr. Whitechapel tell... Why did Whitechapel tell Mr. Whitechapel where Chapel ran? Huh? To give him, like, a little punishment. But not to, like, get him killed. 
the end of this day, Whitechapel thinks he's teaching his son a lesson. Because what does he want from his son? What does he really want from his son? But, but obedience towards him? No, to his master. To his master. Because what does he think? If you're obedient and loyal to your master, you get what? Kindness. Yeah. And you have a good, long life. Question. Does Chapel want a good, long life as a slave? No. Because does he consider that life itself? No. No. Not at all. Question though. If this is all Whitechapel knows, if you were in his shoes, would you have done the same thing? Yes. Think and reflect. Let's go. My master gave orders for a man to catch the trackers and redirect them to the river. Mr. Whitechapel added, this is very important, very, very important, added that my son was not to be harmed in any way, since an example would be made of him for all to see and learn by. He turned on his heels once more, and I took that to be my dismissal from his sight. It was the best I could hope for, my son's safe return. But the house slaves cast me such disdainful looks. You would believe I'd thrown my son to the lions. Highlight lions. What's really clever about this author, ladies and gentlemen, is that he uses zoomorphism and animal imagery for everyone. The slaves, because they're called animals and compared to animals by the masters, but really... In the author's view, who are the real animals? The people with the power. White people. Tell me three types of animals they've been referred to and compared to. Lions. Lions. We're talking about masters and the overseer. They've been compared to bloodhounds. What was the first one? That's not an animal. Sorry? No. It was lions, wolves and bloodhounds. What are all three of these animals? Predators. Predators. Please. Okay. They knew and loved him from from his early years, spent around the master's house when his mother was its cook. They did not understand. They had no one to save. Perhaps the house had become theirs as much as the master's. I cast that look back to as many of them as possible until I opened the door into the yard and found I could breathe again. They were breathing the master's expelled air and perfume and had become so accustomed to it that any source drawing upon the master's disapproval received theirs too. They seemed as angry at me for annoying him as for the fact that I'd betrayed the whereabouts of my son. All I could do was wait. My master delayed his departure to the north with his family and guests until the trackers returned with my son. Mr. Whitechapel was to accompany them to the next town, then return with his second son, William, leaving his wife and young daughter in the capable hands of his elder son, Thomas. I could do nothing but walk about the plantation, sticking close to the main road up to the house, along which the party was sure to come bearing my son. The hours passed like an exile driven through mud. The usual sounds of industry around the plantation quietened as everyone listened for the approach of the overseer. Even the wildlife that sometimes made the place a veritable, veritable Eden. Were today flying out sa- about soundlessly and trotted through the woods on tippy toes. So it would seem to me that my ears and eyes peeled for a sign. Any sign that my son was back and not consigned to a premature paradise. 
The master threw up his arms as he emerged from the house with his family and guests. It was early afternoon. He said he could not delay his departure for Fredericksburg with his guests another minute, otherwise they would be on the road in the dark. He issued orders that my son was to be locked up to await punishment when he returned. Those were his parting words to the deputy. So we have the deputy overseer. He's pretty much an assistant to the overseer. This is really, 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 really important. Mr. Whitechapel has just given the orders to the deputy overseer. You do not harm Chapel until I come because I'm going to make him be an example. Did we all understand that? Yeah. Because the actual overseer, the big dog, has gone and tried to track him with his so workers. So the deputy overseer is now second in charge because Mr. Whitechapel's now gone too. So it's 250 slaves plus the deputy overseer. All these trackers are going to come back now. What do you think? <laughs> Let's see. This deputy heard the order in the company of four slaves, myself not included. I was the fifth. Why my heart sank then, I know now, but at the time I thought my alarm foolish and misplaced. How many times had the master left the plantation having issued orders that were carried out to the letter? Countless. This allied, this allied my fears a little. I also reasoned that the trackers would pass him on the road on the way back and he would tell them in person. Then I remembered that a message had been sent to them to change the course of the pursuit of my son to the path alongside the river. Therefore, any such meeting was unlikely. Again, my heart rattled and I began to pace the main entrance to the plantation. I sought out the deputy to the overseer and repeated the instructions of the master to him. He said he was not deaf and that I would serve my son best if I remembered my place in the affairs of the estate. I bowed and retreated, having no desire to turn him against me since he would be the one at liberty to ensure that my master's orders were carried out. Highlight. Dusk crept up on the plantation. So darkness, right, is creeping up on the plantation. It's foreshadowing. What is this foreshadowing? The death of chapel. The death of chapel. And stole into the halls and rooms of the buildings and under the canopy of trees. Before I knew it, I was squinting to see past the main gate that was shrouded in shadow. Night insects broke the conspiracy of silence among the natural life that utilizes daylight. I was thankful. They returned routine to the odd day. Worst, no, best of all was the sound of dogs barking. Worst too, I wanted to see my son. I knew they were returning for either of two reasons. They had succeeded in apprehending my son or they were forced to call off the hunt because of failing light. God, let it be the first. The dog's barks grew loud. They seemed to swoop about my head as they barked. The way bats swerve from an object moments before colliding with it, in the distance, I could make out a blot. Several of the slaves ran to meet it, adding moving parts to that blot. The blot spread and soon I could see that it was made up of several pieces shifting and growing more distinct. Then I recognised one piece because it moved in a way I'd seen countless times before and had stopped noticing because it was so familiar. There was a moment when the piece sprouted arms, legs, a head, a body and in a flicker, the face of my son.
Open-mouthed, tear-stained, bruised but alive, I rushed to him. He turned his body and face away from me, and I knew he must have heard I'd given him up. I was pushed out of the path and would have stood, still pondering his rejection. Had it not been for the task of ensuring that my master's orders were obeyed. For here before me was my son in chains, led and dragged in, highlight like a wild beast of the forest. I'm not sure why we're not highlighting that, everyone, from which he had been plucked. My son, whose dreams were such that he argued his children would be free. His children, I admit he spoke in this rash place in life was the same place occupied by me and available to his children. Highlight, I counted then that the evidence of 300 years was against his view and ratified mine. Look at how conditioned Whitechapel is. Let's write that in our, down in our workbooks. I counted then that the evidence of 300 years was against his view and ratified mine. Whitechapel is a conditioned slave. He is so loyal to the slavery institution and is dominated by racial prejudice. He then walked away and shook off my words, much as a drenched dog shakes off water. Here he was paraded for his wrong-headedness, proving he belonged to the type of people who learned through expensive first-hand mistakes. Only I could save him. In my judgment, I did save him when I went to the owner of this plantation that runs as far as the eye can see. The owner of every living soul on it, human, animal, plant and mineral. I went to the one person who had the authority to decide whether the day would bring toil, tears or joy. Look at how all encompassing and powerful the master is in Whitechapel's eyes, that he's in control of every soul, human, animal, plant and mineral, that each of us belong to him and that he can just snap his fingers and end our life. I got my master to order that my son be spared from all manner of punishment until his return. I did this. I, nameless, sour face, sit down, grandfather. Yet he turned his back on me, my son. The overseer fired orders at everyone. So the overseer and his trackers and chapel are now being brought back. Chapel's in chains. But now, White Chapel's looking for the deputy, and guess what? He can't find him. The deputy overseer is nowhere in sight. Where could he be? He's having sex with his wife. 10 kilometres off the plantation. Let's, let's find out. They ran off calling. The overseer, Mr Sanders, asked me what the fuss was about. I said that before he made another move, he should hear the master's words from his deputy, who was about to be fetched to him. He asked where I thought his deputy would be at this time, except where he'd been every night for the last several months. I said nothing but shook my head, searched my brain for a clue to this puzzling question. The slaves came back nearly at once, and I could see the answer to the overseer's question on their faces. His deputy had married some months earlier and had taken to disappearing to his wife at their cottage, about some five kilometres from the plantation. So he's, he's, he's supposed to be working, and this guy 
is sneaking off to see his wife. The master, Mr. Whitechapel, knew nothing of this. As far as he was concerned, his overseer's deputy had weekends to go off the plantation and visit his wife, not every evening. Tonight he'd set off even though the master had issued him specific orders. A slave attached to the house said the deputy had left on the assumption that my son would not be caught, at least not tonight. Mr. Sanders muttered something about orders from the master concerning the well-being of slaves can only come to him second-hand from his deputy. It would not be in the interest of a slave to repeat orders detrimental to his comfort. I said those orders concerning my son were witnessed by four others besides myself and it was my duty to inform him of them. He ordered me to shut up or be lashed. Many other obscenities were uttered by him into my face. The overseer had cut his foot badly and was in a degree of pain. Exhaustion from the day's tracking shadowed his face. But no amount of personal discomfort merited this kind of exchange with the most senior slave on the plantation. I carried on talking as if he'd said, what a pleasant sunset we have tonight. For the task at hand was not his politeness to me, but the fate of my son. Sanders Jr., the now overseer, raised his hand and his knuckles and punched Whitechapel in the head. I stumbled, less from the blow than the fact of it. Some 30 years ago, a similar blow was directed at me and I, a mere slave, got that overseer, Mr. Sanders' father, in fact, a severe reprimanding from the previous master, my present master's father. 30 years ago, I managed it then, I would do it again. A silence fell in the yard. My son looked at me and lunged for Mr. Sanders. So currently, who is this Sanders? Is it Sanders Senior or Sanders Junior right now in this time? Yeah. Sanders Junior. Chapels? Half brother. Fantastic. My son looked at me and lunged for Mr. Sanders. Three men in the hunting party restrained him with little effort. They pushed his head down and forced up both of his bound arms high behind his back. His exhaustion made him cooperate. The overseer looked around and a sheet of shame settled over his head. He lowered his chin to his chest and muttered a grudging apology and added that I was asked for it since I would not shut up. He asked me what these orders concerning my son might be. I told him. He threw off his shame and donned an armour of rage. He shouted that his entire day had been eaten up with the pursuit of a renegade. He said he'd faithfully returned the criminal to the plantation when others would have disposed of him upon his capture. My only reason for bringing back that young N is because the boss said he would be made an example of to discourage further runaways. My foot is cut. I am tired and hungry. There is no way this N is not going to face the usual punishment for his crime. An example must be set. Not to punish him now in the appropriate way would be an outrage against this entire plantation. I am the overseer. In the absence of the master, I do what is best for the plantation. I do not take orders from an end. I don't care if you are 100 years old. You are a slave. Now get out of my way or as God is my witness, I will strap you next to your son and give you as many lashes for your insolence. As many lashes? 
I had been threatened with the whip. The master would hear of this. Again, what do we see Whitechapel doing? I've got to tell the master. I'm loyal to the master. The master will fix this. Instead of taking power and control, he has been so deeply conditioned to be obedient, subservient, and loyal that he can't think of anything else. Again, I stood riveted to the spot of the crowd around my son, drifted to the centre of the yard where punishments meant to dissuade onlookers from similar activities were staged. My son called his mother, but his mum is dead. What do you... I'm just going to pause it. I heard this above the clatter of 250 plantation slaves who've now surrounded chapel. There's 250 of them and a small group of trackers. Why don't they fight? Power has been stripped from every one of them. I grabbed the arm of the strongest kin to me, a man close to my son's age, third grandchild of the 10th of my 12 daughters. I told him to run the five miles to the deputy's house since only he could save my son from this public display of savagery. He looked alarmed. I'd forgotten. A slave discovered off the plantation at night was, able, was liable to be killed. I told him I would go myself to save my son. He touched my arm, nodded at me and darted into the shadows of the dusk, sulking beneath the trees. I watched his back blend with the shadows, then melt into them. My son shouted again for his mother. I parted the crowd to get to him. She can't come to you, my son, but I am here for you. He saw me and fell silent and dejected. Interesting. He calls for his dead mum, yet when his father's like, I'm here next to you, what did Chapel do? He was silent. He became quiet. Why? Yeah, his, his father has become Judas and has fallen silent. He saw me and fell silent and dejected. I put myself before Mr. Sanders, who frowned. Please, my son is all I have, sir. Spare him. Let me take his place. Mr. Sanders laughed aloud, brushed the air in front of his face as if to rid it of a pest, and ordered that I be restrained for as long as it took to administer 200 lashes to my son. When he said the number of lashes, an astonished cry rose from the crowd and filled the early evening air. I began to struggle against the grip of two men who simply tightened their hold on me and forced me to my knees. Fires were lit. Each flame conspired with the remaining scraps of light to drive away the ensuing darkness, but to no avail. The first slash ripped a hole in my head and I screamed for my son, who fell as silent as the grass and trees. My two remaining daughters cried with their children and grandchildren and begged Mr. Sanders for leniency. They begged and cried. Highlight, the night was torn to ribbons by their grief. There is two literary features present in that statement and they're very powerful. One, it's poetic. Can a night be actually torn? No. no. But what does that mean? The night is torn by their grief. What does this mean? This is such a powerful metaphor. What does grief mean? Sorrow. This is a parallel again to the epigraph. I was in Sorrow's kitchen and I licked all the pots. Now the whole family, these 250 plantation slaves, are going to lick all the pots in Sorrow's kitchen and forever be impaled with grief and sadness. 
Now when I hear insects at dusk, each click, clatter and croak is the voice of my blood asking for mercy. None was granted. My son, the last fruit of my wife's womb, her joy was granted none. I killed my son because I wanted him next to me when I died. Just as he held his heavy mother waited by death for me to listen to her last breath, he would hold my head to help my last words out. So it is that my great-grandson can knock me down, discard my fallen body, leave me winded and concussed and think nothing of it. Everyone, without exception, blames me for the death of my son. Run into me and kill me, bludgeon me with a stick overseer. I am a common slave. Highlight the next two sentences. There is blood on my conscience. My memory is longer than time. Okay, that is a direct connection to the title of this book. What's the title of this book? The Longest Memory. And who has now on this plantation the longest memory? His memory almost appears longer than what? Than time, than time itself. I want to forget. I don't want to see anymore. I answer to dog. My great-grandchildren run towards me and I sit down to avoid calamity and they laugh, they bray. Sit down, grandfather, or be knocked down. Highlight, killer of children. Protector of the worst fate of your people or any people. Is that what I have become? The master of my fate? No longer in need of control or supervision? One so accustomed to his existence that he impinges on his own freedom and can be left to his own devices? A master of his own slavery, slave and enslaver, model slave, self-governing slave, highlight, thinks freedom is death. Highlight, thinks paradise is the afterlife. Highlight, has practiced death in life for years, but death will not come. Question, if all his life, since he was kidnapped and conditioned to be a loyal, obedient slave, he has viewed paradise as the afterlife, heaven. After Chapel's death, does he still? Does he still? Yes. In some way. Yeah, kind of. In some way. Sees death in his eyes, in his mouth. Has a body bereft of laughter. Sleep, love, purpose. Bestower of death, outliving all. The eyes seeing them off. The sour mouth fixed in disdain. Eyes and mouth seen off a son. Ten daughters, several grandchildren, two wives. Have, left, have nothing left to kill but themselves. Their eyes turn on themselves. The mouth sneers at itself. Stare and sneer and hopefully die. But no, the mornings repeat after snatched sleep. I scramble over relatives, walk into the quiet light, spreading without so much as a rustle over everything and sit facing where the sun starts. The sun begins because it must. When will it die? Will I ever witness death? Son, see me out of this world. I have more family on that other side than on this. Bear me to them. Warm my frozen eyes. Sweeten my mouth. Stir my dead loins. I'll lie down here. Cover me. Welcome back to The Longest Memory. We're reading chapter two, narrated by Mr. Whitechapel. Okay, can we please take down the following notes? This chapter is presented in an authoritative 
and direct manner. No longer is there a grief-stricken tone, but it seems a bit bitter. No longer is it an internal monologue, but rather this is presented in a very direct narrative. Sounds like you'd have to listen back to this podcast. Abdullahi, thank you. (laughs) Mr Whitechapel reacts to the bitter reality of Chapel's whipping, which threatens his perceived humane treatment to slaves. What's really interesting about this chapter, guys, is that we actually see how Mr. Whitechapel thinks and speaks. He actually thinks he's one of the most fair and humane masters in the longest memory. Can you, but can you in any way be a fair master? If you own people, no, I mean, no, no, Manav, no, you cannot. All right, let's continue. I leave the plantation for one night and a day. One night and a day, that's all. And I return to virtual chaos. Overseer, you were supposed to supervise. Deputy, you are paid to work for me and do as I say on my plantation. Whitechapel, you may be the most senior man on this plantation, but you have overstepped the mark in your recent antics. So Mr. Whitechapel is in his house and he's talking to three men, the overseer, the deputy overseer, and Whitechapel, the slave. Your son, God rest his agitated soul. Every time he mentions God, I want you to highlight. Look at how many times he alludes to religion to justify his actions and behavior. Your son has brought calamity on my head. He is dead through his own design. Well, no, he was whipped to death. Thank you. Thank God my wife and daughter were not present to witness the debacle. So Lydia wasn't there when her lover died. Had he survived his life on this plantation would have been finished. You yourself have said that a slave who has tasted liberty can never be a proper slave again. You, Whitechapel, agreed with me to contain your son's anarchic spirit. We agreed in this very dining room to protect him from himself by driving from his mind the foolish notions of freedom. Whitechapel, you failed. I trusted you and you disappointed me. Tell me what I am to do with a plantation of disgruntled slaves. What's Mr. Whitechapel worried about now? Of the other slaves, thinking they can... His reputation and of the other slaves who maybe now... Thinking of running away. Thinking of running away and are disgruntled. What are they disgruntled about? The whipping. The fact that Chapel was killed, whipped to death. Sell every last man, woman and child if you ask me. That's my inclination. Give you all up to the four corners of these states and see how you fare. My acquaintances tell me I am too lenient. Other plantation owners and masters tell Mr. Whitechapel, you're too lenient to your slaves. They tell me I fatten up my slaves too much with large regular meals and decent quarters and I work them too little. No, I argue back. On contrary, a satisfied slave is a happy slave and a more productive worker. Treat them like equals and they respond with nobility. Can you highlight that? That's irony. Does So literally Mr. Whitechapel thinks if you treat the slaves, if you feed them well, give them some form of accommodation, that that's equality. Is that equality? 
Is that equality? No. no, guys. Instead, what do I get? Whitechapel. Reassurances from you and this effrontery from your son. I say his punishment was just, however ramshackle its execution might have been. Leave us now, Whitechapel. We have much to discuss, and let me hear that you have done everything in your power to influence your fellows to comply with the affairs of this plantation. Your son's death is a matter of deepest regret to us all, but in our view, he brought it upon himself. He may as well have taken his life with his own hands. You should have saved him from himself, Whitechapel. You were his guardian. Leave us. Remember, were it not for your seniority, there would be charges of insubordination brought against you for your behaviour towards Mr. Sanders. You owe him an apology. Mr. Whitechapel just made Whitechapel apologise to Mr. Sanders. For what? For talking back. He just apologised to the man who killed his son. There, close the door behind you like a good man. I don't have to now. Whitechapel's left. Who is the two? Who are the two men left standing in front of Mr. Whitechapel? Who are the two men left in front of? Thank you. I don't have to watch Whitechapel. It's you two I have to watch. I pay you good money every month, but it doesn't seem to be enough to content a deputy. Where were you last night? Your habit of disappearing from the plantation as regularly as was reported to me may have cost you your job. Make the explanation good, damn good. And my overseer, my right hind man, my eyes and ears and my mouth when I am absent because I can't be in two places at once. What manner of management do you call the shambles of last night? I am lucky to have returned to a plantation at all. Had I gone north with my wife, my son and my daughter, what would I have come back to find? My home burned to the ground and my livelihood ruined. Given the level of discontent that you have spread among my slaves, what was going through your head when you heard my orders to hold that rascal until I returned? Did you think you were better schooled in the management of a slaveholding than I? Was it your intention to disobey my orders and come up with a better result? How can I be sure you will ever carry out my careful instructions again without a whim entering your head and causing you to deviate from this or that portion of it because it does not suit you or you fail to see the reasoning of it and deem it to be flawed and therefore amenable to your reform? Tell me why I should retain you when I can't trust you not to ruin me. Speak, man. I hope we're all awake and ready and listening. Where is the tongue? That told Whitechapel in no uncertain terms that my orders to hold his son were meaningless in your estimation of the situation. Who gave you the authority? How do you plan to redeem to me the cost of losing a slave in the prime of his working life? Can we highlight that? How do you plan to redeem to me the cost of losing a slave in the prime of his working life? Excuse me, what is Mr. Whitechapel concerned about right now? Because what was chapel to him? An object. A worker, an object, property. And he was young, in the prime of his working life. And guess what he does? He now finds Sanders Jr. I will find you, Mr. Sanders. You will repay to me every last cent of that boy's value. Do you understand? Were it not for the fact that our fathers work together, you would be relieved of this job. Mr. Sanders, I am roundly disappointed in you. 
Whitechapel is a good man. He has seen enough death without you taking his only son from him. He deserved better treatment. He knew our fathers for God's sake. He instructed you in the responsibilities of your post. What were you thinking about when you struck him and had his son whipped to death before his eyes? Is this the kind of man you take me for, that I would be pleased with this brutal form of management? Don't you think I cry out of anger and disappointment? My fury will not result in revenge. You must understand, I see from your behavior that the argument of my acquaintances that slaves should always be shown a stern, distant hand appears to triumph on my plantation over my own view, a view upheld at considerable expense, and one, the lot of the slave, and one held, I might add, by my father and your father. That the lot of the slave is miserable enough without being compounded by unnecessary hardships and cruelties. How long do you think that approach would work? These acquaintances, I don't call them friends for this very fact, run estates rife with all forms of rebellious behavior on the past of their pitiable slaves. He, Mr. Whitechapel has just said, if you are violent and cruel to slaves, they will rebel. When is the last time I have had reason to order a public beating of a slave? Only the other week I read, highlight, in the Virginian. We're going to actually hear from the Virginian, which is a newspaper that represents the plantation owner's um, views and thoughts as well. That a man tried to shoot an apple from the head of his slave at some 20 paces. The terrified slave ran from the man's aim and the man shot him for it. This inhuman display parading as discipline is a regular occurrence on these so-called tightly run operations. I tell you all the evidence supports my belief that as a long-term measure it is a disaster. Contrary to the arguments, such rough handling provides rougher responses. The human spirit is passive in some, but nature shows us that it's rebellious in most. Highlight the next sentence, a very important quote that really demonstrates Mr. Whitechapel's and the other plantation owners' monstrous and cruel view. Africans may be our inferiors, but they exhibit the same qualities we possess, even if they are merely imitating us. Why is that term imitating really important? Is he saying that they're not human? Yeah, he's actually calling the slaves inferiors to human that they may act like us but it's only because they're copying our behavior how absolutely horrific and disgusting their management is best exemplified by an approach that treats them first and foremost as subjects of god though blessed with lesser faculties and therefore suited to the trade of slavery if you cannot reconcile this approach of mine with your beliefs then I must ask you to surrender your office as my overseer. If you hold what I have crudely outlined to you to be true, then you must admit that the events of last night were contrary to it, and accordingly were wrong on your part. My fine is therefore fair. There is much hard repair work to be done to win the obedience of the likes of Whitechapel again, but I grant you it must be done. I remind you that your father before you did much to incur the total disobedience of Whitechapel. And you know to what specific incident I refer without me having to recollect the ghastly details. <clears throat> Mr. Whitechapel is now going to tell Sanders Jr. that he is the half-brother of Chapel. 
You've seen for yourself how the old man's behavior has shown over the years since your father's death, that he bears you not a shred of malice for that act perpetrated by your father against his wife. There is simply too much history between us all to justify what you did last night. Too much. Highlight the next sentence. It is an analogy. What began as a single thread has over the generations woven itself into a prodigious carpet that cannot be unwoven. Can we write in our books? This analogy demonstrates generational memory. Demonstrates generational memory and conveys that all of the characters are linked by their past, present, and future. This analogy demonstrates generational memory and highlights how all of the characters... There is no good in pretending that a single thread of cause and effect exists now, when in actual fact, the carpet is before us with many beginnings and no end in sight. He is telling us that we are all of our memory is interlinked and there is no end. The only logical solution is to continue with this woven complexity and behave responsibly. That or we discard the entire fabric and begin again. Down that road lies chaos. Whitechapel lost his second wife to your father. You know that. She was pure and unsullied until he laid hands on her. Nevertheless, Whitechapel stayed with her after the birth of the boy. Sanders, steady yourself. Your father said you knew all there was to know. He assured my father of this fact. My father took this to mean that you were fully informed. Whitechapel raised the boy as his own. In all the years, he told him nothing of his forced conception. I thought you knew this. It would have been sufficient to prevent you whipping your own half-brother to death. Whitechapel should have reminded you. He must have thought you knew and did not care. Isn't that really interesting that as Chapel was being whipped 200 lashes, why didn't Whitechapel scream out, he's your half-brother? Why didn't he? That would have stopped him. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? That shock? I don't know. The power. I don't know. He must have thought you knew and did not care. All these years, he kept the woman no more than that. Loved her. Put the violation behind him. Made her feel she was his and not your father's chattel. She bore him no children. Not the son he coveted all his life, though blessed with a dozen daughters. Whitechapel would not have knowingly stood back and allowed you to whip your own brother to death. He would not. You see, no one was to talk about it, and with time it sank to the bottom of everyone's minds. My father died, your father, Whitechapel's wife. It seemed all the people who were directly involved, to whom it was important and painful, were dead along with the shame, with the exception of Whitechapel. Whitechapel said nothing to his son. You saw the way they were together. You were supposed to know. You behaved like you knew. Differential towards Whitechapel and tolerant of his spirited son. My orders to hold him until my return 
were issued in light of these exceptional circumstances. Ordinarily, I would have let you run the plantation and hold dominion over the fate of a runaway. Chapel was no ordinary runaway. I thought you knew. Your father was supposed to inform you and that was the end of it. No one was to raise the matter ever again. This whole mess cannot be ended any more than it can be made as simple as it may have been at its inception. Your father's action and that of countless others before him and since ensured that. Whitechapel's uh, longevity and living memory ensures that. Our consciences, for God's sake, ensure it too. Highlight, so important. We must not allow slavery, this trade, to turn us into savages. Have they already turned into savages though? Highlight, we are Christians. Highlight, God should guide us in our dealings with slaves as he counsels us in everything else. Now join me in a little prayer. Let us ask for advice and strength. We will pray and return to our affairs with God's grace by our side. I find it so hypocritical and ironic that he ends this lecture in prayer. Again, using religion to rationalize and justify slavery.